Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Our guest on the show this week is Velvet Dowdy. She is running for house in District 11, and that is these days, it is all of Henderson County. That's the district, just Henderson County. Uh, so that's an area where, you know, we've interviewed um, Rob Wiederstein a couple times when he was uh, running for office, and then when he won that seat, uh, it was a Democratic seat forever. Um, in 2020 is, I think, the first time in a very, very long time, if ever, that it fell into Republican hands. So she's running in a district that has a deep uh, and long-term Democratic history. And, you know, she's a retired educator, so that's always good for, for people in these seats. And we talked to her about, you know, why she's running, what she hopes to do in the seat, uh, and what are the issues that are important to her. So uh, a really good conversation. Another strong uh, Western Kentucky woman, just like we've had uh, three of already. A uh, very good conversation. I was very excited to have it. Jasmine, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because Velvet has a science background, and so I felt like I really learned a lot from her, and her background's a little unique from some other people we've had on the show. Yeah, we talked about, there's a real big issue with the chemical spill in, in Henderson that, you know, is, a, is an issue that's, um, you know, statewide at this point, but yeah, we learned a little bit about carbon and fluorine, uh, or yeah. Fl- yeah, fluorine bonds. I actually don't even know what the chemical is, or what the element is. Uh, I didn't do very well in chemistry, but we got a lesson, so apparently. Yeah, uh, I hate it. So whenever I took chemistry, my high school was remodeling and I had to take chemistry in a trailer outside. So I didn't care for that class very much. Yeah, I had really hard chemistry class and I didn't do very well. So that's, uh, there you go. All right. Well, we do have that interview. Again, check it out. She's great. But we have a couple of things to get to before that. First of all, Jasmine's going to talk to us about a court ruling uh, about Senate Bill 1, 2022 Senate Bill 1. That is about JCPS. Uh, the, the opinion has some, uh, you know, some hot takes, some zingers in the midst of it. So Jasmine's <laughs> going to talk to us about that. There were also a few shootings across the state that we wanted to talk about. One that made a lot of news in Floyd County, and then also another one that made a lot of news locally here in Louisville and Shawnee Park over the weekend. Um, both involved police officers being shot at and shooting themselves uh, and shooting other people. So we wanted to talk about both of those. And then also there are lots and lots of quick hits that I wanted to get to. So without any further ado, Jasmine, what do we need to know about the Jefferson Circuit Court and SB1. Okay, so Judge Charlie Cunningham in Jefferson Circuit Court has declared that portions of 2022 Senate Bill 1 that strips power um, from the JCPS school board, but no other school board in Kentucky, um, are unconstitutional. That's also the bill that um, allows a superintendent to take over day-to-day operations And we talked about this lawsuit on the show, I think, back in June. And it's based on a couple state constitutional arguments. So section, a part of Section 59 in the Kentucky Constitution says that the General Assembly shall not pass local or special acts concerning any of the following subjects. And then it has a list of subjects. And one of those is to provide for the management of common schools or in all other cases where a general law can be made applicable, no special law shall be enacted. Then Section 60 says that the General Assembly shall not indirectly enact any special or local act um, by the repeal in part of a general act or by exempting from the operation um, any city, town, district, or county. So you're not supposed to be like targeting individual locales. 
You're not supposed to Basically. do exactly what they did. Right. And there's a section that specifically says you can't pass a local act that provides for the management of common schools. And so, like, oftentimes when we talk about lawsuits on here, I almost always say, and I may have even said, I'm not sure how this will come down because, I mean, it's it's really hard to tell um, which way a judge is going to go. But I, I believe I did say Section 59 seems pretty clear that providing for the management of common schools is right in there. <laughs> right. So I thought that that was a pretty strong argument for JCPS. So Jefferson Circuit Court heard the case and Judge Cunningham's order came out this week. And I wanted to read a bit of it. I'm going to read pretty much like a whole paragraph, which I wouldn't normally do, but it's because he has two really incredible examples of like how ludicrous this is. So he says, the attorney general's argument cannot be the law of Kentucky without essentially saying that section 59 of the Kentucky constitution no longer exists. But the problem with that is that it does exist. <laughs> and so he give, then he goes on and gives an example and says, if Edmondson County did something to irritate the leadership in the general assembly and those leaders decided to single it out, all they'd have to do is designate the law to apply to all counties containing a cave system greater than 400 miles in length. <laughs> sure, right now, that means only Edmondson County. But potentially, someday, somewhere, we might discover that Mother Nature had carved out a comparable set of passages through the limestone of Kentucky, and thus nobody was picking on the good citizens of Edmondson County. Taken in the other direction, if a recent governor had wanted to get some relief from our pesky traffic laws, he might have persuaded his Republican pals in the House and Senate to pass a bill saying that no one named Matt Bevin residing at 531 Barberry Lane in Louisville was required to comply with KRS Chapter 189. While that law would waddle, quack, and swim like a piece of fine-feathered special legislation, it actually wouldn't be, according to the Attorney General. You see, Governor Bevin might someday have a son named Matt living there too, or even a grandson, or his father if he's a junior. That whole class of Matt Bevins would be exempt, not just the governor. The court is compelled to agree with the plaintiff. The provisions of HB1, which apply only to Jefferson County, violate Section 59. It is not even a close call. Yeah, so the, the, this entire idea right here is like the argument that the attorney general made and like that the Republicans made when they were passing this is that they didn't say Jefferson County in the bill. They were like any county that's this big and, and like that was kind of the way that this law was right written. it says it says for a county with a consolidated local government and right. it's only jefferson and and, that, and that's the way like they that they thought that that was like gonna get them out of it and the judge is like no no you can't just single somebody out using that and he's he's giving several very good and funny examples i like that he like outed matt bevin's address that's kind of funny yeah <laughs> yeah but i I thought this order was like just fantastic. And then at the end, um, he said the attorney general and his colleagues have done a good as 
a job as one could, given the rather miserable hands they were dealt by the General Assembly. That's amazing. That's hilarious. Wow. Wow. Shots fired at the uh, at the legislative branch by by Judge Cunningham there. So right. Yeah. So and and Judge Cunningham, I think, is a, just a really fair judge, and a lot of his orders are, are kind of like poetic, like this. Um, but I I do think that I don't I don't think he's like. I wouldn't call him a liberal judge or, or anything like that. And I say that as someone who um, has taken like big losses in front of him. So I, I just think he's really fair. Well, he's funny. I know that yeah. much. So there yeah, you go. He, he definitely is. He's declared uh, the parts of Senate Bill 1 that single out JCPS unconstitutional and this judgment will certainly be appealed up to the Kentucky Supreme Court so we'll follow along. Yeah, the other there are other parts of SB1 uh including like the that one thing that makes people read that speech by Ronald Reagan. Uh and I guess those are still law because that wasn't what this lawsuit was about, but yeah, uh that the part about JCPS looks like it's vacated. And and mm-hmm. JCPS is pretty pumped about that. That's good because you know nobody wanted this. That was like another thing we talked about every time we talked about SB1 is like nobody was asking for this. It really increases the power of the superintendent and Marty Polio who's the superintendent of JCPS schools is very specific and he's like I do not want these powers. I do not want to be able to do this. Uh and they gave him to him anyway. So, um that's good. Yeah, they the order also kind of talked about the legislative history and how like it was really, it was like totally devoid of like why they were doing this anyways. Um, and that it just really didn't make sense. And like one of the things in the bill was like limiting how often the school board could meet. And judge Cunningham was like, I mean, it seems like if they wanted to address that, they would give extra meetings to Jefferson County because it's so big and there's so much to wrangle with instead of, limiting the meetings in the largest district in the state (laughs) yeah uh, a lot of problems with that bill that's for sure (laughs) Uh, all right uh all right well let's move along uh what's the next thing to talk about we got these uh these shootings that have been across the state so jasmine tell us what we need to know there yeah so i on one of these we're we're catching up a little bit this happened a couple weeks ago um in floyd county so in allen kentucky um which is outside of prestonsburg and floyd county Three police officers and a police dog were killed um, and others were injured during a shootout. So the person charged with shooting at the officers is Lance Stores. Um, the sheriff's office received a call about a woman being held against her will. They went to the house to do a welfare check and a woman went ran out to their cruiser. Um, they were able to get her and got her child from another location Um, to a safe place. And then later they went back to the house to serve stores with a protection order. And that's when he opened fire with a rifle. And then there was a standoff that lasted three hours um, when he eventually surrendered to the police. He's charged with murder of police officers um, and several other charges. And his bond is set at $10 million dollars. Um, Ralph Fraser, Jacob Chaffins, and William Petrie were the officers who were killed. Um, I think one of them was worked for the sheriff's department, and the others were Prestonsburg police officers. Um, so just just like a terrible, terrible situation. Yeah, super re- tragic. Really awful. I mean, and not not something that happens 
ever. I mean, in any place, but it's very, very scary story. Very sad. Um, and, you know, definitely, you know, feel bad for those officers, families and the entire community out there in Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. And the article I read said that this was like the deadliest law enforcement involved killing since like the Eddyville prison riots in the 1920s. Wow. Um, so a, a really long time since something like like this has happened um and and it's a situation you know like i where it seems like the police like did everything right you know they Mm -hmm. they were able to get someone to safety they go back just to serve the epo and this happens yeah yeah really sad so the other one um occurred in louisville this past weekend in shawnee park which is in the west end um, LMPD shot Herbert Lee at a crowded event, which is, was the Dirt Bowl basketball tournament um, in the park. So Herbert Lee allegedly shot an officer who was wearing a bulletproof vest before officers shot back at him. Um, I believe last I read, Lee was still in the hospital, um, but expected to survive. Um, but he's charged with attempted murder of a police officer along with several other charges. So LMPD was attempting to serve a warrant um, on Mr. Lee. I've seen it reported that he had 12 warrants. um, But what I actually read in a WDRB article was that he had warrants for three cases. um, And then the three cases combined contained 12 total charges. So it seems like there were three warrants. Um, He had warrants for 12 charges. And yeah, yeah. I I gotcha. Okay. Three, three, yeah, three incidents, I guess. Three cases, 12 charges Mm -hmm. and a warrant, (laughs) a warrant for his arrest. Yeah. So there was a a large crowd at the park um, when they approached him to serve the arrest warrants and he fled Um, while he was running. He stumbled and allegedly fired one round at the officer who was wearing a bulletproof vest. Um, and then there was a bit of a standoff and police fired shots at him. Um, there is body cam to be released, but uh, Chief Erica Shields has um, said in press conferences that it is from a distance. So it's going to be hard to see anything um, to see the shooting or anything like that. It was announced on Wednesday that LMPD would be investigating itself, um, which is a break in precedent and something that runs counter to a policy change made by the mayor in 2020 to ensure external investigations of police shootings. Um, so after the protests in 2020, um, they changed their policy. I believe KSP would be handling, you know, police involved shootings. Um, and it seems like that's not happening. Yeah. We don't really have any details as to why, but I remember when we've talked about this before, uh, you know, LMPD investigating or KSP investigating, you know, they're, the people who are suspicious of police, they don't really have a lot of trust for either one of those institutions. So, uh, you know, I don't think they're gaining a lot in oversight by giving it over to KSP. Although I guess like having an external investigator is probably better than an internal one. But I, I don't really know. They, they've decided yeah, to go a different direction. I've, you know, I think to me, it's a little bit better to have it be even though it's another you know law enforcement office it's better because you don't have situations like i remember with the brianna taylor case there was a major who was like meddling in the piu investigation and she kept like kind of going back and forth and like 
trying to find out what was going on. And I think she ended up getting demoted over it. Yep. Mm-hmm. We um, talked about that. And so maybe if KSP is involved, you avoid things like that and um, maybe sway from people you know in the department. Um, but it, I think the other thing with this shooting um, that I've seen people be critical about, and, and I certainly am as well, is that it happened at like a public crowded event where a lot of children were. Yeah. Um, and so it serving a warrant in a situation like that seems like a, a really big safety issue. And so I think that's a conversation that's going to happen now. Yeah, it should. I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like that was totally inappropriate. I mean, you know, this person seemed like they had a pretty substantial like record of charges um, that were levied against them. And, you know, probably some hints there that, you know, they might be a dangerous person. Uh, and, and, you know, whenever you're trying to serve them at a big, big event, like a huge community wide event at the dirt bowl, um, you know, that something like this is, is, you know, definitely possible. Uh, and, and, you know, opening yourself up to that is something that we don't have to do. Um, and, and we did it anyway. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, you know, even people who, you know, maybe in, in favor of like getting this person off the street or whatever, um, do not want to, you know, have his arrest associated with like, you know, this, this amount of violence, this amount of gun, gunfire close to children in, in the community. So that's yeah, definitely something that needs a discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else about this one? No, I don't, you know, I don't think so. I think, you know, these are just things they're, they're kind of news stories, but we highlight them because things like this often, turn into some kind of political action that that's what happened in 2020 and so mm-hmm. in the summer where there's there's not as much going on with the legislature and things like that you know we want to talk about things like this that are going on and follow these stories because they often you know turn into some action and, and we may see bills come from from situations like this yeah, yeah, definitely. Or, you know, the the situation with Breonna Taylor didn't happen until several weeks or months after, you know, she was actually killed. Um, so, you know, it sometimes takes a while for, for stuff to come out, for things to kind of boil over. Yeah, July is also the time with a, a lot of shootings. It's, um, you know, hot outside, and it's just, I don't know why, but that's historically a very, a very violent time. So, all right. Uh, we do have several quick hits to get to, so let's talk about them. Um, somebody died at the Louisville jail last week, bringing the death toll to nine since November. So Metro Corrections has yet to speak about this, but the FOP, the police union, did say that the death was likely due to a fentanyl overdose, overdose, according to the FOP. Um, this is the first death in the jail since March, and, and there were, like, several that happened right in a row. There were, like, I think seven or eight that happened in the span of, like, three months or something like that, like a very short period of time. And so, you know, it, a, a good amount of time has elapsed since March, and that's a long period of time without a death. But yes, this is the, the ninth in a very short period of time overall. I don't really know why the FOP is speaking about this while Metro Corrections isn't. I, you know, that, that seems weird to me. Um, but we don't have a lot of information about this, just that this person died, and the FOP says it was due to a fentanyl overdose. Jasmine, do you do you what do you think about this? I mean, given that there hasn't been a death since March, you know, and it seemed like we were on a good good path. Are you like worried that we're going back? Uh, you know, we're regressing on this issue, or um, or something else? How are you feeling about this right now? 
I don't know. I I kind of feel like in just the last couple months, I don't know how much better things have gotten. So I don't know if this is like an an isolated incident or if things are just marginally better. Um, I know that the the head of Metro Corrections resigned, so I don't know if there there's someone um, new in charge who who has made a lot of changes. So you know, I'm I'm not really sure, but it it's still like seems like it's part of a pattern for right now. And yeah. I also do think it's odd that the FOP is, is who has spoken about it. The The only reason I can think for that is like that uh, LMPD or is investigating like how it got into the jail or something. And that's why they know. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, it's just weird. Uh, something that we'll be paying attention to for sure. All right, the next story does involve suicide, so if that's something you'd rather not listen to, skip ahead, probably 30 seconds or a minute. So, um, Leah Weekly reported on the investigation into one of the prior jail deaths from a few months ago. Uh, The investigation revealed that Stephanie Dunbar was locked in an attorney booth for 18 hours. She was supposed to be checked on every 20 minutes, but was only seen sporadically when officers happened to walk by while conducting other business, and she actually hung herself with a pair of soiled pants. So... You know, talking about what happened in the jail over the past uh, while these deaths were occurring, you know, it seems like some real negligence. Um, lack of resources certainly played into, you know, the other side of this, but not not good. Like that's that that's really bad to have like somebody who is supposed to be looked on, looked in on in a spot where they weren't supposed to be um, and who had the opportunity and the means to, to actually, you know, kill themselves. Um, that that's really uh, that that's that's very bad. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't really know what to say. Anything else that you have to say there, Jasmine? Yeah. So I've spent a lot of time in attorney booths at Metro Corrections, and they're tiny. Um, there's no obviously it's not a cell, so there's no toilet, there's no sink, there's no bed, um, there's no nothing except usually like a a stool or a plastic chair. And they're they're only big enough to like stand and I don't maybe like stretch your arms out, but th- there's they're super small and there's nothing else in there. They only have like a little small square window. That's the only way you could see out for any or or for anyone to see in. So this is when I read this, I was just absolutely baffled that yeah. she was locked in there. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and and you know at the at the time the the jail was at what like a hundred and twenty percent capacity, um, you know there was a lot of stuff that was was going on that was you know poorly managed system here at the Louisville jail in 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 this period of time, and and you know like the last story said somebody else died in the jail recently, so um, definitely these problems don't seem to be fully solved at all. So yeah, like I've always known that conditions are bad. I worked as public defender for six years i visited clients there for that during that time and i always knew that things were bad but i thought that reading about this investigation was even more like damning than i yeah could have thought yeah oof yeah so that's that's that um, next one, not not a lot better on this next next one. So Dustin Burley, who is a Democratic candidate for House in District 53, which is in Anderson County, uh, he's also a, a black man. 
Um, he tweeted over the weekend that he had gone to Muhlenberg County to help out uh, Dr. Brittany Hernandez-Stevenson, our guest from last week, um, in, in her race for House. Um, and their group was stopped by the police in a neighborhood. Um, Dr. B released a video later saying that she suspected that they were stopped because they were a group of black folks in one of those neighborhoods. Uh, and her entire video is definitely worth watching. I mean, it's a pretty, you know, scary and kind of trepidatious situation and, and she speaks rea- eloquently i think about the reality of racism in her district while calling on folks to fight for the vision that district 15 needs so you know i was really impressed with her last week uh, i've been out there to to see the district i, I went um down there um I, I thought that she was you know she she can she has um the ability to speak to people um white people and black people in a, in a way that you know um acknowledges and, and and lives in the reality of these issues while calling people to a future uh that that may not include them so um i would encourage you to check that out but yeah uh definitely a scary situation for that group of folks as they were being stopped while they were canvassing yeah i you know as as white people, that is not something that we have to think about if we're going to go help out a candidate. And it's just it's just horrible uh, to hear that 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 happened to them in Kentucky. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done. De- definitely, definitely. Um, an Amazon fulfillment facility in Campbellsville is seeking to become the second unionized workplace at the retail giant. Matt Luttrell is the employee leading the unionization effort, and there's a pretty substantial article about him and the effort there in the Herald Leader. So best of luck to those folks. Um, that would be a, a great a, you know, a great story for Kentucky that we got the uh, second unionized Amazon facility. Um, that was the Campbellsville facility there for Amazon is like one of the longest standing Amazon facilities in the whole country. Um, yeah, so that would be a big win. So um, best of luck to Matt Luttrell and, and the folks organizing down there. A little bit better story. So Ellesmere, which is a city in Kenton County, became the 24th city to pass a fairness ordinance. It's another northern Kentucky city to pass a fairness ordinance. That's an area that's seen a lot of progress with this issue, a lot of success for the fairness campaign at getting northern Kentucky cities to pass these fairness ordinances. So best, uh, you know, good good news from Ellesmere uh, and, and Kenton County. So that's that's great. Um, and then our last story is that Ada Limon was named the Poet Laureate for the whole United States this week. She lives in Lexington, uh, so that's really cool. We have a Kentuckian as the Poet Laureate. Um, she actually moved to Lexington from California. Her husband's a horse racing journalist, and in 2011, she wrote this pretty cool article about the commonalities between horse racing and poetry as uh, these things that people are very passionate about but uh, you know, used to be <laughs> more popular than they are. So that was a very uh, interesting and, and good article. Uh, in an interview with the Herald Leader, Miss Limon said that she was proud to represent Kentucky. Uh, she's the third Kentuckian to be named the U.S. Poet Laureate. Alan Tate and Robert Penn Warren both have been that before. Robert Penn Warren was the U.S. Poet Laureate twice. Um, we do have a Kentucky Poet Laureate. Her name is Crystal Wilkinson. Uh, both Crystal Wilkinson and Ada Limon are very cool people. So that's good. Some some good stuff to end on, I guess, there, Jasmine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Velvet Dowdy. Velvet Dowdy is a Democratic candidate for House in District 11, which encompasses all of Henderson County. She's a retired educator and has held several elected positions within the Kentucky Education Association. She's also a lifelong resident of Kentucky. 
This is her second run for office after running for Henderson City Commission in 2018. Um, so Velvet Dowdy, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you so much, Jasmine and Robert. Thank you for having me on your podcast today. Yeah, we're really thrilled to have you. So, you know, we read about your website and we, we uh, you know, checked everything out about you. And, and, you know, you wrote really eloquently in a couple spaces about wanting to run to run for office to better support teachers and to point Kentucky's government away from what you call petty political battles uh, and, and towards real progress. Uh, you know, a lot of us have really watched the legislature with frustration over the past several years. But, but you know, there aren't many of us that have thrown our hats in the ring and decided to actually run for office. So tell us, you know, what were you thinking when, when you made when you actually made the decision to run for office? You know, how did that happen? What did you think and, and what made you actually decide to pull the trigger? Well, there was a lot of things that went into it. Uh, initially, it was almost like an intervention. Um, some friends of mine invited me to supper at a local restaurant and I went and then there were a whole bunch of people that were there and it was kind of like intervention on A&E. <laughs> you know, they basically made their pitch about why they wanted me to run. And I looked at them and I said, because I've actually run for commissioner twice and I've never been elected. And I said, okay, so what makes you think I can win this race? And they basically went into detail about what the numbers look like and how it's different and, and so on and so forth. And so, the biggest sticking point, and this is probably the reason why I decided to run, and there were there were actually two. Um, I've always been probably more involved in Kentucky politics at the state level than I have at the local level, just because at the state level, that impacted my job as an educator. Those uh, policies and things that are decided at the state level impact what I did. And then also, I'm the person that at school, they always ask to do something if they thought it. In other words, they could get me to do it if they told me that kids needed me or somebody needed me. And in this situation, if I didn't do it, we were not going to have a Democrat on the ticket. And so I decided that it was important for the voters in Henderson to have options and so I decided to run. Yeah, those are good reasons. And it, uh, it is very good and very important for us to have uh, a Democrat on the ticket in Henderson. And we'll get into Henderson in a minute. But if you do manage to win, um, you know, you're going to be joining a, a super minority caucus right now. It's only 25 members and it's going to be tough uh, for them to get past 50 by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, uh, getting getting a, a bigger number is going to be tough to do. Um, Democrats have had real trouble as the minority caucus getting traction for many, if any, of their bills. So, you know, tell us kind of what you hope to be able to do uh, if you make it to Frankfurt. Uh, how are you going to make progress on the issues that you care about as a Democrat? I think it, before we make progress on things that maybe are central in, in concern to Democrats, we first have to look at bills that are going to have bipartisan support across the board. And then you build those relationships with Republican legislator, legislatures from uh, around this area or all around the state and basically earn their trust in you in that you're going to speak truthfully you're going to you're going to tell what you think and why you think that and why it's important and you're going to demonstrate that you have the best interest of Kentuckians in everything that you do and if you can build those relationships and to be quite honest with you as a teacher and an educator for 32 plus years I 
developed a lot of skills at relationship building. Okay, and I've done it with some very difficult students and some very difficult adults. So I, I, I feel certain that I can do that um, and that I can bring those things to bear that are important to Henderson by, also, by looking at things that Democrats and Republicans will be likely to support. I do think you will run into some difficult adults in Frankfurt. So um, <laughs> I wish you luck <laughs> if, you, if you win that seat. Uh, but we wanted to talk to you a little bit about Henderson. So Henderson's part of Kentucky where Democrats have had more success than other parts of the state outside some of the major urban centers. Um, Democrats held the state, held the seat consistently until just 2020 with Democrats holding the seat even through the Obama years and during the Trump wave in 2016. And the seat has changed slightly, but it's now, but is now just Henderson County. So tell us about Henderson County and, you know, how you think Democrats have managed to be successful in this area before. I think there's probably a lot of things at stake. Dem uh, Henderson, by and large, is a little more liberal-leaning than maybe other parts of the state. Uh, we even have some churches that would be considered liberal-leaning, and uh, we have several families that are key in those churches. And I think that's part of the key is that, um, and, well, and then we're also blessed with, at the local level, we have a lot of good Democrats that time and time again have demonstrated that they have the, they have the heart or have a heart of concern for the needs of the people in Henderson. And it, as a result, they've earned the trust of the people of Henderson. So I think that's why Henderson is, is unique in that respect. And so... Um, you know, I think that's why Henderson falls out the way that it does. Yeah. So Democrats did, you know, lose the seat in 2020. So Democrats have kind of lost traction um, in areas like Henderson County. So, you know, what part of the Democratic messages work and which parts of it do you think don't work in places like Henderson County? Okay, well, that's, that's a good question. I feel like the Democratic message that um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to be concerned about the needs of working families plays big in Henderson. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of industry here in Henderson. We have a big agriculture is, is, is a huge industry here. And so we have a lot of family-oriented concerns for people in Henderson. And so when you talk about those values that are family values that deal with workers' rights and wages and health care and education and agriculture and agricultural issues, those play well here in Henderson. Okay. One of the things that's probably going to be a sticking point possibly in Henderson has to do with gun rights or any kind of gun control. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to fall out. I will tell you that there's a large hunting community in Henderson. And so that's going to be, those are going to be individuals that are going to want to hold on to their weapons. But I also think there's a contingent of those folks that are all about responsible gun ownership. Mm -hmm. So 
that remains to be seen. So I think the sticking point could be like gun rights and though, but other family type issues play well here in Henderson. Yeah, you know, uh, we've asked that question to a lot of people, and it's it's just always surprising to me how everybody says family issues, no matter where where you're coming from. Louisville, Lexington, Northern Kentucky, Western Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, Far Western Kentucky, all over the place. That's what plays well. And yeah, you know, I think that the person who has to communicate um, the message about you know the democratic ideas about around guns has to be people from the local community. So best of luck as you're trying to explain those things to to, to your neighbors and, and friends in your district. So. You are running as a retired educator, like we mentioned before, and, and that's something that a lot of uh, Democratic candidates have, have come from. There's a lot of Democratic candidates that have run in, in years where we've lost and won who have been retired teachers. But So if elected, you know, obviously that's a big issue that you're going to care about. And you even mentioned it earlier. Um, what are some of the specific things that you'd like to see updated or changed uh, for educators currently in the system or uh, just in the education system uh, as a whole and also for retired? educators who are on uh, on the pension so so uh, you know all of that um, what are the things that you'd like to see changed first of all I'd like to see it be uh, not just a recommendation that uh, the daily a lot or the yearly allotment is paid to the pension but let's make it it's required in the budget like for example it's not an option that I pay my electric bill it's required if I want to keep my electricity on. So I don't understand why we can say sometimes we're going to pay this and sometimes we're not. And it's not just teachers. It's also firefighters and police officers and all of those. And, and, and for example, let's focus on those pension systems that are the deepest in the red. And let's get those paid back up and let's get those back up to where those folks can count on that money being there when they get to retirement age. As far as practicing teachers are concerned, one of the things that probably concerns me more than anything is we're spending lots of money for testing of our students. And some of that is required by the nas- at the national level and some of that is required at the state level. Here's my problem with it. We're paying a lot of money and I'm not sure we're getting what we need from that testing. See, because what it ends up being is it's giving schools a grade. Well, what it should be doing is informing teachers of instruction. In other words, giving them the guidelines to know where their students are lack, where they're falling short and where they're being successful. Because the name of the game is to educate the students, period. We don't need a grade for a school. Teachers need to know how well did my students do last year on this assessment. And here's what we need to know it. We need to know it sooner than sometime in September when we've already started the next school year. That's too late. And so we need to inform instruction because in a teach any teacher in the classroom, I give assessments to see how my students are performing and if they learned what I needed them to learn, because if they didn't, I need to go back and I need to fix that. Well, teachers in the classroom need to do the same thing. So the system that we have is, I'm not a fan of it. And I think we're teaching, we're testing kids to death. So maybe we come up with a better, a better way to do that and maybe save the state some money in the long run. Yeah. You know, I think, 
pensions is something that candidates bring up a lot on the show, but testing is maybe something um, we haven't talked about as much. So I, I appreciate your thoughts about that. Um, but you also have a science background and are a member of a working group that is determining what to do with, about the high level of PFAS chemicals in Henderson due to the huge leaks at Shamrock Technologies. So this local issue has made the news across the state, but more people need to know about it. So can you tell us a little bit about the issue of PFAS chemicals in Henderson and what you'd like to see the state do about it? Okay, so here's how I came to this. I actually was listening to NPR and I happened to hear a story. I was driving down the road and I heard a story and and I wasn't really paying a lot of attention, but I, I thought I heard them say Henderson, Kentucky. And then it piqued my interest and I paid attention. So when I got to the end of my journey where I could pull out my phone and I could Google, I had remembered the name Shamrock. And so I just typed in Shamrock and Henderson and this article came up. So I was teaching chemistry at the time. And so the, the, my normal, my normal inclination was to think, how can I use this for research? I contacted the, I contacted the, uh, author of the article and he got back with me. I contacted him on Twitter. He got back with me right away and that started a conversation. So through all that, that's where, and actually the PFAS working group was already started, but here's what PFAS is. It is, it is stands. It's an acronym that stands for per floral alkyl substances. And what it means is they're carbon based chemicals that contain a lot of fluorine. And in chemistry, there is no stronger bond than a bond between carbon and fluorine. And what it means is, is living things get a hold of these compounds. Our bodies can't get rid of them. So you guys are more familiar with a a compound called Teflon. Well, at Shamrock Industries, what they do is they recycle Teflon. They take it and they grind it up. Now, years ago, back in the 50s and the 60s, the Teflon was put on skillets and different pans to make them nonstick. But here's the problem. It leaches out into the food. So almost every living thing on this planet right now has some level of some PFOS chemical in their bodies. And biologically we can't get rid of them so they accumulate over time and if they accumulate to a great degree then they can cause all kinds of health problems in the individual so what happened in henderson shamrock recycles teflon and so they have all these other uh, compounds as a waste product okay and they sell some of those for inks and dyes and other things you know other industrial kinds of, uh, I guess you'd say compounds. Well, they discovered a leak at their facility. And so they hired uh, a company to come in and test the groundwater, which is the aquifer underneath the city, to test the surface water, which is just the water on top of the ground or in the river, and test the soil and the air. And what they found is that we have a major contamination in Henderson, in the groundwater and in the soil and in the air. So they contacted 
Kentucky's EPA and followed their directions as to what to do next. Okay. Then this all came out, went statewide, actually went nationwide. So um, right now we're getting ready to meet sometime early next month because the recommendations from the EPA have just come down. And so we're going to have to do something as a community to respond to this contamination to ensure that our residents are not exposed. So in other words, we, we have you have to have concerns with individuals that are using water from the aquifer to uh, water their livestock or irrigate their crops or their drinking water. And then we also have to look at the drinking water in uh, the city system because the levels based on the new guidelines from EPA are probably way too high in our drinking water too. So, and that's based on the new guidelines, not the old ones. Right. The old ones were fine. Right. Yeah. It, it's a big issue. I mean, it's a big, it's a big issue there in Henderson and, it, and it's a real, I mean, it's going to be a, a big problem for you guys to solve and really for the state to solve. So, you know, hopefully we're able to get the funding. Hopefully we're able to get the technology that we need to actually clean these things up. You know, there's a role for the federal government. I think there's a role for the state government. And if you make it to the legislature, hopefully you can bring these concerns to the, those folks and the Republicans will listen and actually help out with some of this stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're on it. Uh, yeah. And a big, big win for the Ohio Valley resource there and Ryan Van Velzer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, uh, Big, big story. That's where I heard about it too. So there you go. Uh, (laughs) All right. So besides PFAS and uh, the education system, which were the two issues we talked about specifically, what are are any of the other issues that you're the most passionate about? Are there anything that you think you would want to be a leader on if you make it to Frankfurt? Okay. Well, one of those things has got to be agricultural development. And by that, I mean research and development to take things that are agricultural products here in the state and provide a market for those uh, farmers of those products within the state. I would love to see us expand uh, what we do with soybeans. This is a little known fact. Uh, Soybeans and the oil that comes from soybeans can be used as a replacement for petroleum products. For example, there's a motor oil that's made from soybean oil. That's actually cleaner, cheaper, all of those things. There's asphalt that's made from soybeans that's actually uh, lasts longer, much cheaper, okay, and a lot cleaner. And then there's also uh, an application that can go over old asphalt made from soybean oil that actually makes the asphalt that we currently have last longer. So see, those are that's just one that's just one avenue of where we could be using and developing and and building capacity in the state of Kentucky with products made from soybeans. And selling those to other states. I also, and this again goes with agriculture, we need to be looking at uh, medical marijuana. Okay, that would open up another avenue for farmers in the state of Kentucky. And I'll just be real honest with you Kentucky has the perfect climate, the perfect soil, the perfect growing season to grow marijuana. It just does to grow hemp. Mm -hmm. And then we we hung a lot of farmers out to dry a couple of years ago when we convinced them to plant hemp. And then the uh, the market for that just went away. 
Yeah. So we we have some we can take on some uh, projects within the state to promote uh, making products from hemp because then you can make paper from it. You can make wood flooring from it. Lots of uh, applications other than just the oil. Well, I have really enjoyed learning about the issues that you're passionate about and about your candidacy. But uh, before we let you go, tell us how people can get in touch with your campaign or help you out between now and the fall. Okay. Well, my website is easy. It is velvetdowdy.com. Believe it or not, that was available. (laughs) So I grabbed it up as soon as I knew that that domain was available. And on my website... Uh, you can read about the issues. You can also volunteer for my campaign. You can donate towards my campaign. And also you can see the upcoming events because we're doing several types of events. We're doing coffee meet and greets every Saturday in one of the neighborhoods that I'm walking, you know, that I'm working in. And so people can come to that and talk with me and meet me personally. Um, and then other events are like call events where we're doing, uh, well, tomorrow night is our second call event where we're doing um, uh, we're doing a phone bank calling voters especially in the air the precincts in Henderson which are very small in density so there's a lot of area and not many voters in that area so they're, they're not really walkable so uh, but looking at those kinds of things and also um, my email is velvet.dowdy at gmail.com so that's easy and then I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Instagram, I'm Velvet Dowdy for Kentucky. All right, awesome. Yeah, there's lots of lots of opportunities, and it's it's really starting to heat up. You know, we've been doing these interviews for a few months, and uh, the first couple of months, people are like, well, we're still getting started. And the last few we've interviewed, we're like, we're out there walking it. So it's good to hear that you're out there doing it, and best of luck I'm to you. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on. We really do appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking with you guys today. All right. Jasmine, how can people find out about us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at myoldkypod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter with our show notes that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining, and we will see you next week.